Hello, this is episode 20 of the Cognitive Gamer Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Blessing. I'm joined today with a guest, Dr. Jennifer Blessing. Jen was a guest on episode 9, where we talked about how games can promote counting strategies. Jen, welcome back. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. If you listened last time, you might remember that Jen is a developmental psychologist, meaning that she studies changes in how children think. During our last discussion, we spoke about how kids count and how playing games can help promote more sophisticated number sense. We would like to continue that discussion by talking about how playing easier games can enable play of more complex games later on. If you're playing games with your kids, you're not going to sit down and play Twilight Struggle or Terraforming Mars right away. Instead, you're going to start simple with something like Sushi Go or maybe King Domino. There appears to be a progression that works maybe not only with kids, but also with adults in terms of starting with simple games and gradually adding in complexity. So Jen, as a developmental psychologist, what might explain this? Well, the way we should think about it is first that some games are completely overwhelming. As we know as a family, there's been some games that we've played where uh, either I'm overwhelmed or even our 13-year-old and our 14-year-old are overwhelmed with just how many little fiddly bits there are and how many things. But when we think about it, not from an uh, adult standpoint, think about it from a kid's standpoint, we have to consider that kids aren't just short little adults. They do think about the world in completely different ways than you and I do. And we can uh, spend time maybe on a later podcast talking about the developmental cognitive theories of Jean Piaget. But he's the grandfather of all theories of how kids think or what's known as cognitive development, and he gave us a lot of insight into how kids' thinking changes over time. And he talked about, there's four stages, just briefly, um, uh, babies and toddlers, and then roughly preschoolers, early elementary school age kids, then late elementary school age, in through middle school, and then just about everybody else, teenagers and up. And if we think about uh, playing games with people in each of those different categories, we have to think about the fact that there are different ways kids are going to approach thinking about a game, being overwhelmed by how much information or being overwhelmed with what the game looks like. Can you give us an example of of those differences you might see in uh, a younger child and an older child and how they might approach a game? Sure. So if you're playing with someone who's between the ages of, say, three and six, Um, so there's a lot of games where people really want to get their kids involved at sort of kindergarten. They've started kindergarten, they're five, this is when they're going to school, and now we can really play some games with them. The thing to keep in mind, though, is that five-year-olds aren't always great about taking other people's perspectives. They might not be great about um, holding a lot of information in their head at one time. Uh, They're certainly going to be less likely to um, consider lots of possibilities, and even Eight-year-olds in that next category, according to Piaget, are going to have trouble with that. So, for example, uh, last night we had family game night, and we played one of my favorite games, Sleuth. And I love Sleuth because it's about trying to sort of ascertain what information you've got, what information other people have, and trying to do your best of keeping track of all of that information. That would be an impossible task for a five-year-old and probably even for an eight-year-old because you have to consider how much information you don't have. Right. And I didn't do all that well last night either. You didn't, but you are better than a five-year-old. Our 14-year-old son was phenomenal at keeping track of information, but that sort of where you've got to make lots of comparisons and juggle information, 
that's something that even through middle school can be challenging for a lot of kids. But as informative as Piaget's theory is, there's actually a whole other theorist whose work really bears the issue of playing games, because we think of games as very social, as very language-driven, and as um, having common tools across them. And language and tools and soci uh, social interactions are all um, earmarks of the theories by um, Lev Vygotsky, who was uh, a little bit older than Piaget, but not by much. Um, his work is uh, perhaps not as well known as, as I'm sorry, as, as Piaget's, but Vygotsky's work was pretty instrumental in considering what he um, proposes as socio-constructive perspective. Okay, socio-constructive perspective. So break that down for us. What does that mean? Sure. So Vygotsky was uh, interested in looking at how we think and how that is informed by who we hang out with, what sort of tools are at our disposal, and then other pieces of culture like language. So for example, gamers have a whole language unto their own, right? That is very true, yes. I'm sure if you go We're up to- We're all very elite. <laughs> well, no, no, no. But if you go up to a random person or friends of ours from other contexts who don't play games and say, hey, uh, and have a make some joke about a meeple, uh -huh. not a language word that everyone's going to necessarily relate to. Correct. So language shapes how we play. And even in some of your podcasts, you've talked about how you talk about um, your, the uh, representations you have in games. So those, those are very linguistically based. So Vygotsky talked a lot about all of those pieces that are part of our social con uh, context and how they inform how a kid thinks. Okay. So how we interact with others strongly helps our thinking or um, so the best example for uh, that I usually use in my classes to talk about Vygotsky is if you talk about um, a kid who's trying to ride a two-wheel bicycle okay and if you're a kid who has ridden either a, a tricycle or something with training wheels on it mm -hmm. the jump to taking off those training wheels and just going with two wheels is really considerably scarier than we think it should be as adults, right? Right. That's why you have mom or dad hanging on to the bike bit. Exactly. And But moms and dads intuitively understand, although they might not articulate it, that the problem with driving a two-wheel bike is that you've got to do two major things. You've got to balance, and then you've got to propel forward. And the kids don't have a good sense of that balance because every other experience to this has been I don't have to do balance because I've got training wheels or I've got three wheels. Okay. So dads and moms ride, running behind the kid and holding on are not trying to hinder the kid. They're trying to promote an interaction where they're taking off some of the load and they are making it easier for the kid to go forward and making that balance a little bit easier until kids kind of feel that sense of how you wobble back and forth until you get right to the right to the middle there. Okay. And so Vygotsky talked about that as scaffolding, that we promote enough support and then we gradually diminish it until the child is able to do it on their own. Okay. So how, how might that apply then in a game, game setting? Well, that's an excellent uh, question. In cases like we talked about last time with number sense, parents might 
count along with kids until they understand that kids are able to count each square independently right. or that they have a sense of what order numbers go in. Or parents might reiterate the rules. Now, these are things we even do with our teenagers, right? right. Ticket to ride. You have one of three things you can do. <laughs> but that sort of reiteration or sort of stepping back and the hard part for parents um, is that you're going to have to take a step back from being in the game and mm. step back and go, okay, wait, what does my child need help with in a game? So for example, sleuth would be well beyond their capacity, as I said, but if you were trying to do something for with, a six year old, for a six year old, five, absolutely. Five yes. So if you were trying to do something where they had to figure it out, you might help remind them with questions like, well, what information do you know? Mm -hmm. um, what information don't you have? And sort of prompting them along the way. But that would really be more helpful for a kid who's more eight or nine. For a six-year-old, you might have to make the game easier. Okay. So um, one of Vygotsky's other discussions he talked about, or the, the points he talked about, was what he called the zone of proximal development. I like that phrase, the zone of proximal development. Now explain what that is. Well, the ZPD is, if you think about it as um, where a child is as a center circle, that's the knowledge that they currently have. And then if you think about a circle that's a little bit bigger than that, that's the zone that, is, that is the knowledge that is proximal to them. It's close, but they don't have it. Okay. And then there is the last circle that is bigger than all three of those, which is distal, which means it's knowledge well beyond them. So, for example, if you have a kid who can do uh, addition problems, like 1 plus 4 is 5, 2 plus uh, 4 is 6, that is their current knowledge. That okay. would be the center circle. The next circle out, that proximal circle, would be addition problems that they could probably do with a little bit of help. So problems of 10 plus 4 or 11 plus 13. Okay. Where they have all the math facts that they could do that, but they're going to, in order to get to that zone, they need a social interaction with a more capable person, like an adult or okay. a, a teacher or a teacher yeah. or a slightly older peer or a slightly more advanced peer. And therefore, Vygotsky said interactions are going to help advance the child's knowledge so they're going to get out of that present knowledge and move to the proximal. But he also recognized that there's distal knowledge. That is, a child who can add two uh, one-digit numbers together but really needs some help with adding two-digit numbers together is probably not ready for calculus. Calculus is that distal knowledge. Okay. So if we think about the idea that we want to play games that pull a lot on what the present knowledge of a child is, but that we could maybe push them a little bit to that proximal knowledge uh, circle that's just a little bit beyond them. Mm -hmm. But if we can provide help in some meaningful scaffolded way. Okay. Okay. To, to make that uh, proximal knowledge uh, gradually become knowledge that they actually have. Exactly. So then their present knowledge circle gets a little bit bigger. So one of the ways I was thinking about this is um, escape rooms. Okay. Yeah, we've done a couple of escape rooms. Uh, we've done the actual physical ones and those uh, and those games also. The, the escape rooms in a box. Escape rooms in a box, and um, we actually went to a physical escape room about two years ago, I think. Yeah, it's been almost two years now. And so our daughter was about eleven. 
Now, rarely do they have, we're not going to have a whole bunch of eight-year-olds running around in the escape room, right? Right. Because their, their present knowledge is, we got to get out of here. And that's about all they can manage. They haven't quite got all the abilities to do all of the puzzles. Mm -hmm. When we went to that physical escape room, it was with uh, two young teens, so an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old, adults and an older teen. And we were able to give the younger kids tasks to do, but they didn't necessarily solve all of the harder problems. We would give them, uh, okay, here, look for this. Right. Something very concrete. Exactly. And so that makes it a lot easier. It takes, we took a lot of the cognitive load off of them. Okay. When we've played some of those escape rooms in a box with our kids, some of them are really frustrating. Because it goes back to that idea I mentioned with the game Sleuth, because you have to keep track of information. And there might be just enough knowledge if you gave them one puzzle that might be within their present knowledge or maybe even just a little bit out of that into the proximal knowledge and you could help them solve, you know, matching up symbols or whatever that, that puzzle specific to that escape room right. might be. But if you ask younger kids even younger teens to do that whole escape room they're going to you're going to find that what lives outside in their distal knowledge is keeping track of things going through all possible combinations of characteristics young kids and teens are really good at skipping steps in terms of that right now then how can a parent use this idea of scaffolding and zone proximal development to help their uh, kids maybe uh, learn more complex games? Well, you have to be, first of all, in tune with what your kid does know. Okay, yeah. And certainly with what they like, because there are certainly some games where they might know a whole lot, but their interests are going to wane, and it's not going to go well for anyone. Um, but you've got to scaffold in ways that are natural to you, right. that are going to be ones that are... Um, you use you want to use language that's naturally supportive and rather rather than sort of dictatorial. You need to move this space. To, okay. You need to move two spaces is not a scaffolding. Saying how many spaces do you think you should move? Um, what do you need to do next? Where you're promoting the child to think for themselves, but giving them the tools as they go along. Okay, but then also using the stuff that they already know about. Absolutely. So, you know, some of the. Um, ways that uh, games can be excited. Well, so maybe kids, you mentioned Sushi Go at the beginning here. Um, kids might not be fans of sushi, um, but they can do things like matching up um, things that look alike. And the Sushi right. and Sushi Go are rather appealing looking. Right. So they've got smiley faces. Mm -hmm. um, they look like they're alive, which leads a lot into how little kids tend to think they give um you know, living characteristics to non-living things. So a smiling gnocchi roll is a lot more appealing than just a right. matching some random shape or color. It also makes me a little bit leery about eating sushi, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but this makes me think of a recent game called My Little Scythe. Absolutely. Are you familiar with that one? Uh, you know I am. <laughs> In fact, we own it and we've played it a couple times now. For those of you not familiar with My Little Side, it was designed by uh, Hopi Chow, a dad, and Vienna's daughter. Uh, Hopi really wanted to play side by Stonemeyer Games and wanted to share that experience with his, with his daughter. Uh, but he knew it would be beyond her zone of proximal development. 
Uh, with Vienna's help and her love of My Little Pony, they designed My Little Side, which has been picked up by Stonemeyer Games as a commercial product, which is now available. So, Jen, uh, what does My Little Side do right with regards to scaffolding and the zone of proximal development? Well, My Little Side is phenomenal. I am so impressed that this dad, and I think she was five at the time when they had designed this game, have really taken the crucial, if you will, or the, the, the core elements of Scythe and made them a lot easier for kids. So, for example, it streamlines the whole experience. Um, we've, as I said, we own My Little Scythe. We've played it with our two teens. We've also played it with um, two friends of ours, adults, and it is not uh, a kid game in that. Not in the least. I, I'm also using it in my uh, cognition of game playing class uh, with college age students, and uh, they sometimes approach it with a lower trepidation when they see all the all the pieces it does come with. Oh, really? So, have they played it already? They have played it, uh, and uh, they've uh, most of them have enjoyed it. Good. Good. I mean, it really is a lot of fun. And as someone who sometimes looks at the box and all of the fiddly bits, uh, um, I was really impressed. So some of the things that My Little Scythe does right is that it has reduced the cognitive load, as I keep referring to it. So that is, it's reduced how many things you have to keep in mind at a time. We have also played Scythe, although we don't own it. And I frankly was overwhelmed <laughs> and um in fact we even it's very easy to make mistakes we were trying we had uh one opportunity to play it and so we were trying to get going and we made some mistakes in terms of how to read the rules and where to start that's right but i think had we not had the experience with my little scythe i'm not sure it would have been far some worse. of us would have been able to have uh, approached scythe at all absolutely <laughs> I was um uh, I didn't manage to finish the game with you all but it um has well, it is a much longer game. I mean, that Christopher and I finished the game and it was uh over 3 hours I think for our first game. Yeah, well so first of all, you can't play a 3-hour game with a 5-year-old or yeah. even an 8-year-old. Or an 8-year-old, yeah. That's not um going to hold their attention and um therefore it reduces the number of rules you have. The um number of ways to win and if you are familiar at all with Psy there are certain achievements or stars that you have to gain and I believe it's six that you have to gain. In full game I believe six yes. Six and it's only four in my little side so while that doesn't seem like a great reduction it really is helpful for kids to know it's an achievable goal because they might see if they were to look at the, the original scythe board as I did and went, oh my God, I'm never going to finish this game or manage to get all of those. It's reduced the options of what you can do on a turn. The um, board itself is phenomenal and the, um, the pieces designed to be very um, readable. Right. The um, Which was a good part of scythe as well. Once you got into the iconography, it was... It's more understandable because of how the player board is laid out and whatnot. But I, but that's definitely carried over to my little side as well. Absolutely. But side obviously appeals to an, an older audience. So the, Correct. the icon, the iconograph, I apologize. I <laughs> pronounced that wrong, but the icons as well as the, um, the coloring and the storyline, this sort of postmodern world war two mechs and, and um, people 
that sort of theme obviously is not very child friendly. So the look of my little scythe is obviously much more child friendly, but it's also made it easier to follow. You can uh, discern the rules rather easily as well as where you're supposed to go next. Um, it's reduced the number of pieces you need to move around the board. Inside there's, I believe, a uh, you have the, well, yeah. You have the mechs. You have upwards to four mechs. You have the uh, the hero, the the workers. You can have uh, so so. I think you can have over ten pieces that you're responsible for moving on the board. And my little side just has the two seekers that all do the same thing. Exactly. So you don't have to distinguish between what this movement is for this piece versus this piece. So you've just got two pieces to move. And if you chose to just move one, you could still have a fairly fun game, even if you decide for your child it's just easier to move one piece um, for most of the board. Although there are some times where you'd want to move two in order to um, make it uh, possible to get up, uh, get as many achievements as you want. It is, um, I found it just overwhelmingly engaging as a storyline, but it's also made it um, easier to uh, follow the rules. So for example, the dice, very clear whether or not you're rolling. There's That's one of the options you can do is make things. And so you right. roll and um, you can put pieces on the board. So overall, it has the same flavor as Scythe, but it is um, a friendlier version as well as reducing the cognitive load. Now, I have to say, though, the interesting thing here is, though, that it's not as if we're treating kids as different, as smaller adults, as I said earlier. So this is not like the old game of Trivial Pursuit, and then you have Trivial Pursuit Junior, which is the exact same movements, mm -hmm. the exact same board play, but the questions are easier. My Little Scythe has a different storyline to it. Mm -hmm. It has... Um, Elements that are just a little bit easier to keep track of. So, example, pie fights versus I forgot what what it is inside, where there there's a warring kind right. of yeah. feature to it. Um, there's differences in how you um, end game the game. So there's it's a lot. Um, it's got a whole full flavor to it that it's not just scythe reduced it's it's a game unto itself right but it's distilled but but yet it still has distilled side down into its core elements so that you still have that quote-unquote side experience uh that's enjoyable even for adults absolutely and in fact our friends who we, we had played with had um the husband had made a comment to me that well now we have to go play side because we made them play my little side yeah. um i believe we only played one game of it with them and it was it sort of whetted his appetite to play the actual side game or the the adult side game, if you so will. So side is now in Dave's zone of proximal development. I believe he actually could manage to play the game. <laughs> yes, <Okay. laughs> he managed to do just fine. I don't. I think it was our fourteen-year-old son who beat all of us, as yes. I, as is often the case in playing games. Um, but there are obviously other ways that we can think about this. Um, Ticket to Ride, which I know is not one of your top games, but it's still a good game, though. It's a good game, you, and, and, yes. it's, and it's a good uh, gateway game to get people into the hobby, uh, which kind of speaks to this whole zone of proximal development idea, I believe. Absolutely, and I, I happen to love Ticket to Ride. Our, our son and I have a, a 
deep competition about who is better at this game. But then they've come out with different versions of it, including um, First Journey, which is the kid version of this, which has a... Um, has again reduced the load. There are shorter routes where you're putting your uh, trains. You're not doing um, as many um, trying to count to get points. I don't think there's a point tracker in that game. I've never played it, but from the um, pieces I've read about it, it's just sort of it's reduced it. It's also made it a little bit more kid friendly in terms of its coloring, its iconography. Right. I now said it correctly, there you go. and it is. Um, has retained the elements of this so that kids could find it to be eventually where their memory span is bigger so they can keep track of more information or their interest is um, and their attention span is longer so they would be willing to stick with a game for a longer period of time. But you're right, this is a great gateway game to get kids interested in playing games and even getting your friends friends who might be like, look at all of the pieces in in a box of size and go, oh, I, I can't play this. Yes, but they were, would be willing to play um, uh, uh, My Little Scythe or uh, Ticket to Ride or, or some other game like that. Absolutely. Yeah, and this holds true not only for, for board games like we have been talking about, but for video games as well. Absolutely. I can't play any video games, but I know our son, his interest in video games really probably was a result of you handing him a controller when he was a kid. Right, and playing some of uh, some, some kid games with him, like with Lightning McQueen and, and, and the Cars games, and uh, there was a, a Winnie the Pooh game that I think we played, and uh, kind of gave him some experience controlling a character on the screen and scoring points and, and interacting with um, uh, the controller mm-hmm. uh, and sort of scaffolding how you play more complicated games like he does now, like you know, Fortnite, of course. Uh, I don't think he plays that as much as other kids, thankfully. But he, um, I do remember some of those early uh, Nintendo, what version of Nintendo did we have? Uh, Nintendo 64? 64 or something. Um, And I remember him playing like a Pooh Bear game and a Piglet game. And they were very, um, uh, the, the narrative was very just follow the the path through the hundred acre woods there was no side quests as in uh some of the many uh video games that i know you and he enjoy and so it was a very straight uh narrative of well you do this and or you just keep passing it by but you're right it gave him a sense of um holding a controller understanding where the there was a more gentleness in controls there where you could overcompensate and turn and it would still let Pooh Bear get whatever right. it was. You didn't have to be dead on in your accu- accuracy. Yeah. Okay. Well, I believe that will wrap it up today. Uh, Jen, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about scaffolding and the zone of proximal development. Very happy to. I look forward to uh, your next invitation where we can talk about uh, issues that relate to gamers trying to engage their kids in playing games and making them lifelong um, game players as well. Okay. Thank you. And thanks to you all for listening to this episode. As always, I welcome any comments or questions you may have, so please email me, steve at cognitivegamer.com, and also visit my website, cognitivegamer.com. Also, you can like me on Facebook, Cognitive Gamer, or follow me on Twitter, at cognitive underscore gamer. I'd appreciate it if you took the time to give this podcast uh, a rating and a few kind remarks on iTunes or wherever you listen to Cognitive Gamer. This will make it easier for other people to discover the podcast. I appreciate those five-star reviews. Until next time, remember to think about what you play and have fun doing it.